So um, my talk today is giving you a brief um, sort of bird's eye view of liquid biopsies in GI cancers. And I want to start um, disclosures um, with a brief historical perspective on liquid biopsies. So liquid biopsies were first actually described in 1869 by a gentleman, Thomas Ashworth, um, back in Australia. And at that time, um, you can see here a quote from his manuscript, cells similar to those in the tumors were seen in the blood after death. So what he's describing is actually circulating tumor cells at that time. Um, and later on, it was um, nearly 75 years later where in 1948 circulating tumor DNA was first described. And I'll go into the differences a little bit in terms of what these terms actually mean. Um, in 1980 was the first time circulating tumor DNA from oncology patients was actually identified. And then in 1997 was when we first saw it actually being used in clinical purposes where cell-free DNA was detected um, in the mom from the baby, about 10 to 15% of um, maternal um, circulation was actually fetal DNA. And then move on to 2000, and here we have um, the CTC, first FDA CTC circulating tumor cell machine that was approved. And then finally, um, most recently in 2016, was the first FDA approved blood biopsy or liquid biopsy test for the EGFR mutation in lung cancer. Um, and so I wanted to give you a brief high-level view of three different areas where I think liquid biopsies and GI cancers are relevant. Um, the first is in drug resistance. The second is in treatment response. And the third is in residual disease. And I argue in resistance in 2019, we are here, and liquid biopsies are ready for prime time use. In treatment response, we're close, not quite yet there, and I'll make the argument as to why. And in residual disease, we are, we are here. So what is a liquid biopsy? Um, this was a review that was done by Dr. Chavner and Dr. Corcoran, who I work closely with. And a liquid biopsy really is any fluid from any, um, any organ or a non-organ that's a fluid derived. Um, and a biopsy is referring to anything that's a tumor fragment. So it can be an exosome. It can be a circulating tumor cell. For the purposes of my talk, I'm going to be talking about cell-free DNA or circulating tumor DNA. So that is the tumor that is derived from, or DNA that is derived from tumor fragments that's released during um, apoptosis and cell turnaround. But keep in mind that this is just normal cell-free DNA, tumor-derived DNA that's in the background of normal cell-free DNA, which is being turned around at a regular pace. Um, the half-life of circulating tumor DNA is on the order of 30 to 60 minutes, so um, rapidly turning over on a minute-to-minute -minute minute -minute basis. Um, there's a lot of different methods for liquid biopsy or ctDNA, and um, the methods we'll talk about really depend on the context. So when we're talking about drug resistance, a lot of the technology we use is looking at whole exome or whole genome sequencing, and the um, technologies we're using are really focusing on the breadth of analysis and depth, whereas in the residual disease setting, we're looking at mutation-specific analyses, and we want to optimize our sensitivity for detecting um, fragments of DNA. So in terms of resistance, um, this is not a new story. This is a patient with acquired resistant to BRAF inhibitors um, now over you know, 10 years ago. And the clinical benefit of precision medicine is really limited by the eventual emergence of acquired resistance. We all know that personalized therapy has really been game-changing and helps people live longer and more durably. 
um, with good quality of life, but resistance happens. And in order to continue the benefit of targeted therapy or uncover new targets, we really must truly understand resistance. So you can see this patient here where 23 weeks later has developed marked resistance. So very simple model of resistance, and here's how we think about resistance today, is you have a tumor and you have an underlying um, potentially resistant subclone. You give a um, targeted drug based on molecular profiling. You did that molecular profiling based on the biopsy. Give targeted therapy. You see the target lesions go away, but then you see with that clonal pressure, you see the emergence of resistance alterations that emerge. And these, we think, were probably pre-existing resistance alterations in individual patients, um, but can be between lesions or in the same lesion. And so historically what we've done, we re-biopsy molecular profile again, and then identify new resistance mechanisms, and then come up with therapy to overcome those resistance mechanisms. The challenge with biopsies, as we all are starting to become increasingly aware of, is the heterogeneity. So there's heterogeneity between distinct metastatic lesions, but there's also heterogeneity within a metastatic lesion. So if you were to biopsy many different sites within the one tumor, you may get different, um, different molecular characteristics of that tumor. So single needle biopsies, as we're starting to realize, may vastly underrepresent the molecular heterogeneity that is seen. So liquid biopsies can actually detect these alterations, and they can detect these alterations throughout the body and give you in real time a sense of what is happening to that tumor at the start of therapy and as well as over the time course of therapy with the evolution of how therapy has gone. Um, so here's uh, an example, and this was an example that was a patient here at MGH and was one of the first beautiful examples of how um, these resistance alterations were really modeled in the lab and um, translated into a real-time therapeutic application for a patient. So this is a patient that was given cetuximab, which is an anti-EGFR antibody um, in colorectal cancer. And what you can see here is that this is a lesion that was starting to grow on cetuximab. We biopsied the lesion. We found a MEK1 lesion, um, MEK1 mutation. MEK1 at this time was a novel resistance mechanism that was found, um, was not previously described, um, but modeled in the lab as a validated resistance mechanism. And um, Dr. Corcoran and colleagues modeled this resistance mechanism and found that if you gave another anti-EGFR antibody as well as a um, trametinib, a MEK inhibitor, you could actually overcome this resistance alteration. And what you see here is a nice graph of the ctDNA curves. And what's happening um, in the blue is you're seeing the disappearance of the MEK1 mutation go away. And then you see um, con um, concurrently what is happening, though, you see a rise in the KRAS mutation as well as the P53 mutation. And so we were a bit perplexed in terms of what was happening at this point in time, given that we were seeing a response in this lesion. Um, so there's a response, but what you can see what was happening, there was another lesion that was actually growing, and that lesion that was growing was the lesion that had the KRAS mutation. And so this, again, we would have missed this on a single biopsy, but what we found in the blood was this KRAS mutation that we later found on a subsequent biopsy, um, highlighting a nice example of how this actually works in patients. Um, this is another patient of mine, and this is a 54-year-old um, male with metastatic colorectal cancer who received chemotherapy. And then RAS testing revealed that it was RAS wild type and eligible for anti-EGFR therapy and received anti-EGFR therapy plus chemotherapy for 16 months. 
And then you can see what happened here is we did a blood biopsy, and with the liquid biopsy, we found a KRAS amplification as well as a HER2 amplification. And these are both also known mechanisms of resistance to anti-EGFR therapy. So we withdrew therapy. Um, patient received local ablation to a growing lesion, followed by three more months of chemotherapy. And then did a repeat blood biopsy. And what you can see on the repeat blood biopsy is these resistance alterations go away. So we no longer see the um, KRAS amplification. We no longer see the HER2 amplification. And um, so we restarted anti-EGFR therapy again. And again, the patient was able to get six months of a response on this treatment. Um, so again, highlighting a real-time example of how these liquid biopsies can actually be used in clinical practice. But one challenge has um, sort of been elucidated thus far, but um, haven't spent as much time on, is that there is marked, marked heterogeneity with resistance. Um, so this is work that we did here with um, John Strickler, who's at Duke, showing um, a subset of patients. These are 42 patients with colorectal cancer, all treated with anti-EGFR therapy that developed resistance. And this is a heat map of uh, blood biopsy results. And what you can see here is up to... 13 resistance alterations per patient. And these are each at the top here, different classes of um, known resistance mechanisms. So EGFR extracellular domain mutations, where the anti-EGFR antibody needs to bind. Um, amplifications, um, KRAS mutations, NRAS mutations, MAC1 mutations. And what you can see is marked mutations and in different classes, across classes and within classes. So the answer of resistance is not as simple in terms of one resistance mechanism and one patient, but what this highlights is, again, the blood is able to show the marked heterogeneity of resistance that really complicates resistance. So what we did here in our group was we wanted to set out to study this more systematically, pan-GI cancers and pan-treatments. And we set out um, in 2016 um, with Dr. Corcoran's um, really great efforts, a systematic liquid biopsy collection protocol, and basically tried to collect everyone who was starting targeted therapy and get blood um, for ctDNA prior to starting therapy, um, during therapy, and then at the time of progression. Um, and when able, we tried to get tumor biopsies at progression as well. It was a um, easy consent for patients, fully staffed, um, activated very quickly. And this led to um, work that we just published in the fall um, in Nature Medicine and um, really was a um, great effort with many collaborators, um, Gaddy Getz and other collaborators at the Broad, our pathology colleagues, um, um, Dr. Yurik in the Rapid Autopsy Program. And what we did here was we had um, 42 patients across different GI tumor types, across molecular subclasses, and um, across um, so you can see here, so CRC, biliary, GI, um, or gastroesophageal cancers, gastric cancers, and across different targeted um, classes, BRAF, FGFR, MET, HER2, and RAS wild type. And what I want to um, show you first is the liquid biopsy data and then the tumor biopsy data, and then I'll um, talk a little bit about the differences. So if you look here... Um, what I want to really highlight is that post-progression, ctDNA basically found resistance alterations in 76% of the patients. 52% of these patients actually had um, more than one lesion that was found, um, again, suggesting profound and frequent heterogeneity. Tumors really here, as you can see, only found less than half the patients um, had 
resistance mechanisms, and only two, two patients, so 9% of patients, um, had multiple resistance mechanisms versus the blood, where you can see 40% of patients had multiple resistance mechanisms. We had 23 patients when we had matched tumor post-progression biopsies and post-blood biopsies. And in those patients that had matched tumor and blood, the ctDNA actually identified resistance mechanisms, 78% of the cases that were not found in the underlying um, uh, tissue. And I'm going to just circle here, right there in green. I don't have my pointer. It was not working. Um, so if you look here on the top, this green right here, that was the only case where we actually found a mutation in the tissue that we didn't find in the blood. And actually what was interesting, so this was an EGFR extracellular domain mutation, and what was interesting is um, when we didn't find it in the blood, the reason we think we didn't find it in the blood was our initial blood assay was just doing um, genome sequencing. But when we actually looked for that specific mutation using a more sensitive assay like digital droplet PCR, we actually did find that mutation. Um, so um, to be fair, it wasn't found initially, but later on, subsequently, it was actually found in the, in the um, blood as well. So nothing that we found in tumor wasn't found in blood. Um, this is another case that we highlighted in the paper of a patient with a BRAF um, mutation and received BRAF inhibitor, MEK inhibitor, plus a PI3 kinase inhibitor on a clinical trial. And um, again, what you see here on the bottom is the BRAF mutation is found in all the lesions and in the blood. And um, But no single tumor was able to show all the resistance mechanisms. So in one of the liver biopsies, we showed a KRAS G12S mutation and an NRAS mutation, as well as a low-level EGFR um, amplification that was seen in the brain but not seen in the liver biopsies. A subcutaneous lesion showed one of the KRAS mutations at a, um, at a low level, but neither the other two alterations. Um, again, highlighting that the tissues were all quite heterogeneous, heterogeneous in what we saw, but the CFDNA really was able to capture the overall picture of what was happening in this patient. Um, this is another patient that had an FGFR fusion, a really high-level fusion, um, 50 to 150 copies. And what you can see here is a decrease in the clonal mutation with an FGFR inhibitor. Um, so this is the clonal um, row A mutation there in the green. And then the ctDNA basically showed the emergence of four FGFR mutations. Um, only um, one was outside of the kinase domain and not certain if that is a true valid resistance mutation. But the three other mutations you can see here rising in the pink and the blue um, were all modeled known FGFR mutation resistance um, mechanisms. Um, the FGFR um, L16V is in the kinase, or is it the gatekeeper mutation? And we did a rapid, rapid autopsy of these 17 lesions. And what we saw with these 17 lesions was, again, marked heterogeneity. Um, so we saw one of the kinase domain mutations in the liver METs. Um, we saw another one not in the liver METs, but in the other metastases. Um, we saw the um, another um, kinase domain mutation at a low level and only one liver met. And um, interestingly, all these were found at very, very low levels in the primary, but in fact, the primary didn't harbor the um, fusion. We couldn't find the fusion on whole exon sequ sequencing or RNA-seq in the, in the primary. 
Um, and we think that the primary likely you know, had a low-level, undetectable amplification that later seeded the metastases. Um, so that was a subclonal uh, mutation that later um, seeded the rest of the metastases. Um, but again, what was striking was that all three FGFR mutations and the majority of the private alterations that were present in each of these individual tumors were detected in the post-progression cfDNA. So in terms of resistance, you know, what I hope that I have showed you is that molecular profiling through ctDNA can actually be used to guide treatment decisions. You can have diverse mechanisms that can promote resistance in different patients and in the same patient. Um, single lesion biopsies may not truly capture the heterogeneity of resistance and may miss alterations that may drive treatment failure. And integrating liquid biopsy into clinical decision-making may be key to develop strategies to overcome the heterogeneity of resistance. Um, and finally, liquid may, biopsy may offer us the ability to monitor the emergence of resistance mechanisms in real time and adjust the therapy accordingly. Um, the next section I'm going to spend a little less time on, it's treatment response. This is some of our unpublished data. Um, and um, the reason I'm spending less time on this is because I don't think it's quite ready for prime time, but um, I do think it's some interesting data and we'll see more of this um, type of work in, I think, years to come. Um, so what we did is we've talked now about targeted therapy, but we wanted to look, can ctDNA actually predict response to just chemotherapy um, in general? And so we set out to prospectively look at um, 100-some GI cancer patients, again, pan-GI cancers, but metastatic disease patients, and we'd follow them serially, so baseline two weeks, four weeks, eight weeks, and until progression. Um, and we followed them with ctDNA, and um, about half to three-quarters actually had tumor markers as well. Um, so I want to show you here is a change in ctDNA and tumor markers at four weeks. So what you can see is ctDNA within four weeks is already predicting patients that are having a partial response. So everyone who had a partial response had a drop in ctDNA of 30% or more, with the median actually um, around 98% in terms of a drop. Um, in terms of clinical benefits, so these are patients that actually had a partial response plus stable disease. Um, patients also... Um, uh, ctDNA was also able to predict it, but you can see not quite as clean, cleanly. And um, when we think about stable disease, we have to keep in mind that resist criteria is quite broad. So these are patients that are having, you know, up to 20% um, growth to, you know, 30% decrease, um, all encompasses their um, stable disease. So this is a very vast area. Um, tumor markers were significant at four weeks as well as clinical benefit, but you can see the spread is not quite as clean. Um, what I thought was interesting is we took that change, and you could see that since all the patients that had a um, PR had a change of 30%, we took that change and wanted to see what happened to the PFSs. And you can see for all patients, and then colorectal cancer here on the right, for all patients, if your ctDNA decreased by 30%, the PFS was 175 days versus 60 days if um, it did not. And in CRC, that PFS change is even more striking. So you see a ctDNA decrease by 30%, again, 226 days versus 62 days in terms of your PFS. Um, over time, we wanted to see if we could predict early. So we looked at two weeks as well as eight weeks. And you can see two weeks here for a ctDNA um, for both um, partial response and clinical benefit did not reach significance. But at eight weeks, we actually did see that significance hold. Um, these are some spider plots here. And um, what these spider plots are showing are, again, patients that had a partial response, stable disease, and progressive disease. And um, if you look again for the partial response patients, you can see the ctDNA decline 
was marked and remarkably consistent. And most patients that had a PR actually had a PR benefit beyond six months. There were only six patients that progressed within six months. And for patients that actually achieved stable disease over time, what you can see is the CTDNA levels are actually rising in many patients who develop progressive disease within six months. Um, so you can see the blue here is the six months, and then the orange is patients that did not progress within the six months. And you can see here in the orange in the middle, the lines continue to go down, and the CTDNA levels remain suppressed um, in most of these patients. And progressive disease patients are kind of all over the map. Um, so in terms of treatment response, um, I think what we've shown with some of our data that it can be assessed serially, it can be assessed in real time, and it can be predictive of response, but further prospective studies are needed to really show us how we're going to use it in this setting. And um, CTDNA may be used in combination with tumor marker scans, et cetera, in the future. Um, so finally, to wrap up, we'll spend a few minutes on minimal residual disease, um, another exciting area in CTDNA. So currently, the problem, especially in colorectal cancer, is we do curative intent surgeries. And um, in curative intent surgeries, we have no way to determine who is cured and who is going to recur. So in stage 2 colorectal cancer, the standard is no adjuvant chemotherapy, but 10 to 15% of patients recur. In stage 3 colon cancer, everyone gets adjuvant therapy, but 50% of patients are actually cured with surgery alone and don't need adjuvant therapy. And despite adjuvant therapy, there's still 20% of patients that still recur. And so can CTDNA be a biomarker to help figure out who will recur? Um, and what um, has now been shown by several groups, first shown nicely by Jeannie T in Australia in 2016, was that post-operative CTDNA in stage 2 colon cancer actually did predict recurrence with a hazard ratio of 18. And when you compare that to tumor markers and clinical risk factors, which is what we use currently to make decisions, you know, the hazard ratio is 3. And um, with post-operative CEA, tumor markers, which are clinically used, um, doesn't meet significance there and crosses one in terms of your confidence interval. So again, showing the current factors that we use really aren't the best predictors of recurrence in terms of relapse. In stage 3 colon cancer, again, um, this group, same by Jeannie T. et al., showed that it can be prognostic. So this is post-operative CTDNA, um, post-operative chemotherapy CTDNA. But what they did here is they showed, yes, it was prognostic, but can also be predictive or response to chemotherapy. And what you can look here is the three-year recurrence-free interval after chemotherapy um, improves. So 30% of um, patients that were CTDNA positive were recurrence-free versus 77% of patients were CTDNA negative. So actually showing that chemotherapy does alter the, um, alter the patterns of recurrence. Um, this is more supportive CTDNA as a predicted biomarker. And these were stage 3 patients, um, stage 2 and stage 3 patients, actually. And what you can see, these are 10 patients that received chemotherapy here on the top right. And the green arrow here is showing patients that actually, um, you can see the gray bars here on that top right are showing the duration of chemotherapy. The teal dark green lesions here are showing CTDNA positivity. And what you can see with chemotherapy, these white dots are showing that patients actually clear their CTDNA. And these top three patients who clear their CTDNA actually remained recurrence-free. 
And you can see the bottom seven patients that all recurred, the lead time to recurrence was actually nine months. So you're actually able to predict earlier than, um, than conventional imaging when recurrence is going to happen. Um, and what we're trying to do now in the MRD space is look at better sensitivities and better tools to basically improve our ability to detect. And what we're realizing is that one time point is probably not enough. And so um, this um, group, um, Terrazona all came out this summer and the annals showed that basically if you did serial draws and followed patients over time, your improvement was 35% in terms of your ability to actually detect who is going to recur by following people over time and not just with one, one draw. Other technologies are looking at multiple mutation tracking, um, methylation. This is some work that we're doing here. And what we've shown here is methylation can improve your sensitivity of detection from 56% to 69%. And epigenomic calls can actually increase your sensitivity as well for predicting recurrence. Um, this was our work um, here showing, um, again, with methylation, um, you can see nicely, again, the curves separate in terms of patients that had persistent ctDNA with um, the yellow or the red curve being um, quite poor. Um, and a median time to recurrence of 182 days if they had persistent ctDNA. Patients that cleared um, here in the middle, that means they initially were positive and then cleared with chemotherapy and then turned negative. Um, their medium time to recurrence was 333 days. And the patients that um, were negative, um, many were at a follow-up of 600 days remained um, recurrence-free. So what we're trying to do is post-surgery really figure out who these red people are that are going to recur and are there patients that we can give additional therapy to or de-escalate therapy to. And we think that ctDNA will really transform what we're doing in adjuvant care. Um, and I just want to show you a clinical trial that we're leading here to wrap up. Um, so this is taking patients that have stage 3 colorectal cancer. and um, Everyone gets standard of care chemotherapy, and then after chemotherapy, again, like I mentioned earlier, 20 to 30 percent of patients are still going to recur, and we think many of those patients are going to be detectable ctDNA post-adjuvant chemotherapy. So can we give additional chemotherapy to these patients who are ctDNA positive in the hopes of actually um, impacting their cure rates? And we're going to do it based on, again, targeted sequencing. If patients don't have any molecular targets, they're just going to get additional chemotherapy, different type of chemotherapy. Um, but if they have a BRAF mutation, if they're MSI if they're, or they're HER2 positive, um, they're going to get targeted therapy based on those molecular characteristics in the hopes of actually clearing that ctDNA. Um, and the primary endpoint will be clearance as well as um, DFS as co-primaries. So in terms of residual disease, um, ctDNA is prognostic. Um, clearance is possible, and it may be predictive of response to therapy. Um, and as we go forward in the MRD space, I think improving MRD technology will be critical. Um, so um, where are we with GI cancers in um, 2019? I think we have arrived in terms of ctDNA, and um, the next few years I think will be really exciting to see where, where this field takes us. Um, so, um, you know, I really want to thank um, Dr. Corcoran for his mentorship, 
Um, the rest of the GI group is really a phenomenal group of clinicians that I get to work with every day. Um, a lot of these efforts wouldn't have been possible without, you know, cancer centers support and setting up um, large system-wide blood biopsy collection protocols. Um, Dr. Boland from the surgical um, team has really led a lot of the um, MRD efforts as well from the surgery end. Dr. Yurik with the rapid, rapid autopsy program, a phenomenal research team. Um, Dr. Chavner, um, Dr. Vanek ECSF, who remains a close mentor as well, and here are my funding sources. So thank you. Partner, are there certain tumor types that are better suited for circulating DNA than others? Yeah, it's a good, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I didn't get to go into it that much. So, for example, pancreatic cancer doesn't shed very much, um, and uh, um, I think, um, and even within colorectal cancer, for example, we see very different shedding sort of rates in terms of um, disease. So, liver metastases shed a lot. Patients with peritoneal disease, we don't see um, as much ctDNA that's detectable or not. But I think as some of our assays are getting a little bit better, even for pancreatic cancer, um, we're seeing improved ability to actually detect it in the blood. Yeah, so I had two questions. One follows up on that. So I guess the important thing will be whether negative is truly negative, right? Because, I don't know, the ovarian people are right Detecting it earlier made no difference in ovarian cancer, so it would be the greatest value to be able to say, yeah, you're truly negative, so maybe we don't need to treat further. Uh, yeah, and I think... And how know, confident are you that you'll get there? Or 99% of the way there? <laughs> no, I think, you know, um, in, the stage, in the stage three, for example, you know, I think that's why we're, no one is confident de-escalating therapy yet, because you can't necessarily believe your negatives. Um, thus far in terms of where we are with our current technologies. Um, one thing our group is really trying to do is um, be systematic and thoughtful about these various applications, so whether it's methylation or whether it's um, tumor-informed approaches where you're um, doing whole exome sequencing of the tumor, looking at multiple mutation tracking, so ways of really improving the um, sensitivities. And our sensitivities have actually improved quite greatly even in the short period of time. And you know, basically, you know, at 0.01%, we're able to detect even, you know, one, one molecule of um, circulating tumor DNA in that background of cell-free DNA. Um, in stage two colorectal cancer, we're looking at sort of de-escalation approaches because right now, or in, even in stage three eventually, but um, right now no one gets adjuvant therapy for the most part. And so you don't feel um, as bad yet not giving therapy because the standard is to not give therapy. So if you don't detect it, okay, um, you weren't going to get therapy anyway, but if you do, then we know you're going to recur. So we feel um, very good about giving you a therapy. Um, so, um, it, you know, some people sort of asked us when we were doing the stage three trial for this purpose is why didn't we de-escalate? But to your point, um, as a clinician who's treating these patients where, you know, recurrence risk is still 20 to 30% and um, it's hard to hard to de-escalate with the current technologies that we have today. And, and then the other, just a quick point, is that all right? Uh, yeah, in, in the CRC patients who had a less than 30% or greater than 30% and you divided them, why did you choose that? So why we, we, we actually played with a few different thresholds. The reason we ended up picking 30% was be, because everyone that had a partial response dropped 30%. 
and 30% actually optimized our unspecificity. So I didn't show that data, but around 30% is where we got a specificity of around um, 90%. Um, and we compared that specificity actually to tumor markers and add a specificity of 90% where you're not going to mistakenly take one, you're only gonna mistakenly take one person off of therapy out of 10 who would otherwise be responding the sensitivity was around 70% um, for CTDNA and was only around 34% for tumor markers. So the 30% was really sort of doing, playing with AUC curves and things and just really figuring out where we sort of optimize that, both specificity and sensitivity. Okay, thanks. I'll just, I'll just make one comment though, that we have to always remember in any early detection strategy, what's our greatest limitation? Right? It's the fact that we don't really have curative therapy. So after it hasn't worked in the first, I mean, I'm, I'm all in favor of early detection, but we can't think that, ah, the minute we can detect it, then that means that we can cure someone. Yeah, I think, you know, what we're hoping is that when you have micrometastatic disease, and so in stage three, we're operating under the assumption that these are micromets, and that when you're dealing with, you know, million cells versus a billion cells, that maybe your opportunity to actually cure a few of those patients um, may be improved, but but we'll see. It may not, um, and um, yeah. So we'll have to see what our prospective studies show us. 